If you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. Steamer, when did you first become interested in aviation? Wow, I mean, that's kind of funny. I was actually really young. I, uh, I was scared to death of heights. Um, <laughs> so, you know, obviously aviation was not uh, something in my future. I'd get in a two-story building and look out the window and, you know, kind of cleaning up against a wall. And uh, I uh, just out of the blue, we went to an air show in uh, Spearfish, South Dakota, where I'm from, in this little uh, biplane, open cockpit biplane, and I got a ride in it. And I came back and I told my parents, I was 13 years old, I said, I want to be a pilot. And they said, well, you should probably take some lessons then. And so I started doing that. I paid for them myself, busing tables at a local restaurant, and uh, got my pilot's license when I turned 17. So it was, uh, you know, at first, like I said, I got up in the air, I was like, it's a little different when you're flying. You're, um, you know, you're in control of it versus, you know, at someone else's control. So it was, uh, started young. Absolutely. And I want another question to this, or the answer to this one, is why did you join the U.S. Navy rather than the Air Force? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to sound you know, cocky, but I want to fly with the best. I mean, flying off aircraft carriers, you know, uh, I mean, there's no comparison. I mean, they're, you know, I think they're the best in the world, and I think it's, you know, numbers speak for them. Um, you know, it's, uh, you put the aircraft down an eight-foot point. You know, eight-foot left to right in a Tomcat, you hit another plane, Eight foot low, you hit the round down and kind of a fiery end. Four knots fast, you miss the wires. Um, I mean, they're the best in the world. And that's what I wanted to do. You know, it's, it was an aspiration. I mean, you know, a goal, which I didn't, you know, know would become true. But uh, fortunately, it did. You know, really blessed to be there. Absolutely. Uh, so can you tell us what year you joined the U.S. Navy and some of the uh, initial aircraft you started training on before you went to your frontline uh, aircraft? Sure. Um well, I graduated college in uh, 87. In 88, I uh, went to flight school for the Navy. The uh, started out in the T-34, you know, Charlie, the Turbo Mentor, you know, a little uh, prop plane. Um, went through that. And, of course, you know, all the way through in the uh, U.S. Navy, you're graded, as, you know, in every, you know, service. But you had to have certain grades to be jet grades because in the Navy, we broke it down into three categories. You either flew props, jets, or helos. And you had to have a certain number of above, above, meaning above uh, grades in your flight training to be eligible for jets. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it depended on what the needs of the Navy were that week. So, you know, it was kind of a, you know, a hit or miss. Um, so you finished the T-34s, and if you had, I believe it was above like 45 aboves, meaning every flight, you know, they grade like three or four things on this thing on the uh, flight. And if you had above, you know, it put you in that category, you were eligible for jets. And then mm -hmm. you put in your, your, your desires, jets, props, or helos, and they selected, um, usually probably 10 to 20% jets, and then the rest went to, you know, helos and props. And uh, so you finish up, I, I selected jets, was uh, fortunate to get that. Then that was in Pensacola, Florida. Then we traveled up to uh, 
um, down to, excuse, should say down to uh, Beeville, Texas, where we flew T-34, or actually T-34s were the T-2s. The, uh, um, and you did the, there you started your tactical training. You know, you started basically um, formation flying, FAM flying. FAM is just familiarization with the jet. Um, and then we did some tactical stuff like guns, um, bombing, low levels, um, instrument flying. And then the final was to get to the go to the boat. And that was where, you know, a lot of the guys fall out because they, the first time you go out, you go out alone. You know, you see the aircraft carrier and it doesn't look like anything you've ever landed on. So you look at it and you go, the whole way around you're there, you're saying there's no way we could possibly land on this thing. I mean, it's moving away from you and you turn basically a beam the carrier and you're going, oh, there's no way I can get there. No way I can get there. About 90 degrees, you're like, no, it's still no way. And as you're rolling in the groove behind the boat, you're like, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe. And just driving away, you know, 20 or 30 knots away from you, you know, uh, and you, you get aboard. So anyway, and of course, we have LSOs there that are grading your passes every time you come by. So you have to have a certain grade to pass that. Well, if you pass that, then you go into the next stage, which is A4s, the Skyhawk. Nice. And that's much more tactical in nature on that one. We, you do your basic, you do your fam, your fam flights, your familiarization with it, then formation flying, you know, instrument flying. Um, then you do bombs, rockets, guns, um, air combat training, you know, or dog fighting. And, uh, and of course, you're graded in each one of these areas. And, of course, anyway through, anywhere through this whole process, three unsatisfactory flights and you're gone. So the pressure's on the whole time. Mm, yeah. You only get to see the boat. You see the boat once. The second time you see the boat, if you don't pass it, you know, your grades aren't good enough, you're gone. So, you know, uh, it's it was a very selective process, um, you know, pretty uh, uh, pretty nerve-wracking, you know, because a lot of your friends you see getting kicked out. You know, I started uh, with 100 guys, and two of us ended up flying fighters, you know, that were selected to go there. So yeah. it uh, – you know, it was uh, it was one of those things. You know, a lot of it was you know good fortune. The good Lord blessed us. Um, you know, you had the right flights at the right time. Um, you know, I mean, preparation. You studied every night before your flights. You know, it was. You know, we had some fun too, but you know, it was a lot a lot of pressure on you. Absolutely, and obviously, uh, you went. You got selected for jets. Did you have a type in mind you wanted to go onto onto the front line? I mean, what aircraft did they have at the time? Oh, I mean, it was Tomcats. For sure, you know it was. I wanted to fly, you know, the Tomcat. You'd seen Top Gun as everybody had. I mean, it's a beautiful jet. We had Hornets at the time as well, um, you know, and that was my second choice. But yeah, I wanted to be a Tomcat pilot. So you know, I'd I'd ask for Tomcats West Coast, but see, you could put either location or jet first. And obviously, you know, location is nice, but you know, if you're in San Diego flying, you know, something you didn't want to fly, not quite the <laughs> option. So I put Tomcats and they were going through the F-14D transition on the West Coast. So they weren't taking new pilots at the time. So I got F-14s East Coast, but it turned out to be great. And yeah, I definitely was very, very pleased with my, uh, you know, the selection. It was really blessed. Yeah, absolutely. So you went to the F-14A, but what were your first thoughts on the aircraft when you got up close to this mighty jet? How big it was. I mean, it was giant. Um, you know, the jet takes off the uh, carrier at uh, around 72,000 pounds. So 36 tons of jet. Wow. You just you look at it and you're like, wow, I mean, it, it's a monster. You know, and, uh, you know, when you're flying, it doesn't feel that way. You're in the cockpit, you don't realize there's, you know, 70 some feet of steel behind you. It's, uh, um, it, it was just, yeah, when you look at it, you're just like, wow. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Impressive. So what was yeah? So what was the role of the A model? Was it still literally um, a carrier defender interceptor, or was it still uh, when you joined? Uh, did that have almost the bombing capability when you when you came into the squadron? Well, funny that you asked that because when we went through the reg, we the reg that's the replacement air, air group, kind of like fifty six squadron where they trained the new you know Tomcat pilots. Um, we just started dropping bombs. The F fourteen was actually a, a straight fighter from design. But the guys coming back from Vietnam, you know, in F4s, they'd realized getting down in the mud with the bombs was not really an enviable place to be. <laughs> no. But they said, we'll, we'll stay as uh, fighter pilots only. Um, and, and in the end, that kind of, you know, shut down the Tomcat in the end because it allowed the Hornets to come online because the Tomcat was actually a really good bomber. So we'd started dropping bombs then. So it was really a, a dual role, you know, when I started flying it. It was actually a better mill bomber than the A6, just a mill bomber, meaning the basic... Uh, um, accuracy of the bombing system on board. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. So and then, of course, we pro we progressed with the lantern pod later. You know, with laser guided and all that. But um, yeah, it was a, it was an excellent bombing platform. We could actually drop supersonic in the Tomcat with the tunnel and stuff underneath. So yeah, <laughs> that is impressive. The Tomcat yeah. never ceases to amaze me. Uh, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about some of your ground training and what what was it like working with a Rio? How did you find that? Uh, you know crew cooperation there oh i do it loved working with a rio i i gotta admit now a good rio and we had some really great guys i mean they're worth their weight in gold a bad rio you take the gas you know i mean it's uh <laughs> um, no not to put them down anyway because they were great guys and you know it was always fun you always had a partner on a, a layover you know if you got diverted somewhere and you always had somebody to go hey watch this and somebody saw it you know <laughs> so uh yeah no they're great guys i i had some of the greatest guys I flew with were my reels. And uh, going through your flying training, um, what kind of stuff uh, would you be would you be doing? And also, I want to talk about the wing sweep. Did that take a lot of getting used to, or obviously it was automatic? But did you ever put it into manual? Oh well, I mean, you know, that's obviously something that that comes a little bit of time in there. You know, you start off with just really pretty much automatic, unless you're coming in for the break or something where you're putting your wings back. But as you get more advanced in the jet you know, you definitely handle it a lot more yourself because, you know, it can be used in uh, a lot of different ways. I mean, the automatic formation, automatic, you know, it's based on Mach number, which sometimes is not where you want to be. If you're at high altitude, your Mach number is going to be high, you know, at, at a lower air speeds, and the wings will be back. And, of course, you don't have a lot of turning capability with your wings back in the delta formation like that. So you'll be wanting to put it out. Now, there's two different ways manually you can do that. On the stick, there's a little... Uh, a button where we can put it up and you can move your wings manually. You can move them back or forward, but it will only allow you to move them forward to the point at which it said the Mach number could possibly be a damaging factor to the aircraft. But when you're at high altitude, the Mach number is really not a factor yeah. because uh, you know, you're going so slow, there's not a lot of friction on the wings. So you, you can manually, there's a little handle down there on the uh, center console you can pull up and you can move the wings freely at any time. Now, the danger there is obviously if you're going super fast, you did that, you know, you can rip your wings off the doggone plane. You know, you go up at Mach 2, you, not a time to move the wings. Yeah. So, and obviously, as you got more and more advanced in the jet, you know, you'd be moving them forward at different times. Like, you know, you might come into a fight with the Air Force or anyone with your wings fully back. So they think you're up at about 500 knots when really you're back about 300. Then as soon as they start to turn, you pop your wings out and they realize that you were at a lot slower speed. We could really fool them in a fight. 
Yeah, so I'm really kind of, pretty effective a lot of times. Yeah, because that kind of moves on nicely to our favorite subject on the channel, DACT or BFM, ACM, whatever you want to call it our, what, out there. But uh, yeah, so who, who did you fight and how did the F-14A fare? And did people not get used to the, the wing sweep like, oh, well, we know what he's doing. Yeah, we can see him coming in and pretend to be fast. Well, I mean, you know, the F-14A was underpowered. There's no question. The TF-30 engines were not what were designed to be in the aircraft. Um, so it was more of a, I mean, could you fight it? Well, some guys could fight it great. There really depended on the operator within the aircraft. And that comes down to any jet. And when we talk about the F-3, it's a, you know, a similar thing, you know, where you're talking about, you know, abilities and, and uh, um, really defines the jet. Now, two equal pilots in, you know, two different aircraft, well, a different story, you know, if one has better turn radius and rate or more power than the other. But... The A, it was a lot more uh, difficult in a dogfight because it was underpowered. You know, you had one shot. You didn't make up for it with a lot of thrust to weight as you could in like an F-14B or a, a Big Mouth 16 or one of those kind of things where, you know, they can get their energy back in a matter of seconds. Um, so it was, I mean, it was, uh, it had its capabilities. It had its limitations like anything, but we fought everybody. We fought, you know, F-18s, F-16s, F-5s, A-4s, Kafirs, um, you know, uh, pretty much the whole gambit. Yeah, and uh, what would you say a fed, let's say, against an F-15? Did you rate your, you know, your chances, or were you a bit nervous coming into that kind of dogfight uh, situation? Well, I mean, something like an F-15. F-15 generally doesn't go to the merch. You know, I mean, they're an outer air battle, you know, air defense fighter. Um, and in that one, the Tomcat wins every time. We shoot in Phoenix. Um, you know, we shoot him before they even really had us on that radar most of the time. Um you know, if you're allowed, you know, our full combat capability, usually the F-15s wouldn't fight us with Phoenix because they knew they were going to die. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you, you get into the point or I mean, you get to the point where they can even shoot. Well, we can shoot now in a no escape zone with our missile. And, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, it was you know, classified and stuff at the time, but you'd shoot and we just exit the fight. I mean, and, you know, then they'd be fighting a Phoenix and not us. And, you know, it was um, they usually limited us to sparrows when we came into a fight with the Air Force. You know, and they have 15s because they knew. And it was, it was really impossible for them to fight it. Mm -hmm. And we can't talk uh, about the Tomcat without talking about your first trap and takeoff on the carrier. What was that like, Steamer? Wow, I, I tell you. Um, well, you know, obviously, once again, like all the other jets in the Navy, they don't put somebody else. Well, in this one, we'd have a reel with us. You know, but no other pilots. And you go, it's, uh, it's on. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've done it in two other aircraft. So there was a little bit of familiarity you know, with the carrier and the operation there. But, um, I mean, it was just what it looked like is, you know, they had jets stacked around there, and you're going, I'm going to hit one of them. I mean, <laughs> you know, the jet, the jet was just giant, and you're coming aboard this carrier. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in comparison, the, the A4 was very small, and so was the T2. I mean, it was a big jet, but, I mean, it performed great. I mean, it really did. It was, uh, um, you know, it was kind of like any other jet. You just go and you just do it. Yeah, I've heard like uh, from a few F-14 guys that it's pretty it's a pretty difficult uh, aircraft to actually get on the carrier. Is that true? It is. I mean, it's you know it was laterally unstable, which made it a good fighter. But yeah, it was. Uh, and like I said, it's underpowered. You didn't want to get underpowered in the F-14A coming aboard the carrier because um, you come over the you know I don't know how much you know about the carrier operations, but the wind that comes off the deck, it it goes down once it hits the round down. That's the white part of the back of the boat, and when it hits the water, then it comes up. And so you have what's called a burble. Mm -hmm. So in the middle, you'll find yourself getting kind of ballooned up. And you want to pull power off and push your nose over slightly. Of course, we're flying angle attack, so we try and keep a, a set angle of attack. 
But then you got to come right back on with the power. And the F-14A had about seven seconds between full, idle power and full power before it spooled up. Wow. So you get caught in a burble. And the more the wind that the aircraft carrier is making, the worse the burble is. So in a still situation when they're driving faster, plus you get a disruption from the superstructure as well hitting you, which gives you you know some really um, rough air right there. You can end up in a bad place. You get back on the power a little too long, come up on it, and you know you won't make it over the the edge of the deck. Mm-hmm. And of course, you get on an aircraft carrier. I don't know if you've been on many, but on the back, you know, it's called the the round down. It's the portion that's painted white. Hardest steel we have. You'll see dents on it about the size of baseballs, <laughs> and that's where somebody had a very unfortunate time. Yeah. You know, and usually didn't make it through that. So it. Uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, it keeps your attention. Landing on the carrier is never one of those things you just take for granted, especially at night. Well, I joined VF-33. They were just coming back from the first portion of the war in Iraq, and I joined up with them. So they're all pretty um, experienced, hardened guys, you know, and I'm the new guy showing up. You know, and I knew a couple of the guys from previously in the squadron. They were great guys. And um, the, uh, it, yeah. was, uh, it, was, uh, it was really exciting, but you were also a little bit intimidated, too, because were from some pretty serious players, you yeah. know, and I'll be honest, the Tomcat community wasn't, uh, um, you know, sweet and nice. It was kind of an eat your young, you know, the young. Oh, okay. If you don't perform, they'd get rid of you. You know, one of the guys in the squadron had been FENAB during the war because his landing grades weren't good enough because they have to count on you to be on time and get the carrier, the plane aboard. They don't have time to mess around, you know. They're steaming this, you know, this uh, um, carrier with 7,000 guys there just for you to wait until you get aboard. So it's, you know, you have to be predictable and uh, and able. So it was, uh, it, uh, you know, it can be a little uh, um, intimidating at times, I think. But was it, it's a was lot it, like joining a fraternity. You yeah, know what I mean? And yeah. Was, once you become part of it, you know, you and you find guys within the fraternity that become you know, really tight with you. You know, you're good with everybody, but, you know, you have your better friends and stuff. And um, you do everything together. You know, you, you, in the mornings we lift together, we go work out together. Um, if you weren't flying, you were in the gym with the squadron. It was, uh, you know, and at night, go out and have a couple cool ones or, you know, go to the pub, as you say. Um, it was a, it was a lot of fun. A real, didn't seem like a job, if that's, you know. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that. But even on the carrier, obviously, I don't know how many F-14 squadrons were on the carrier in your time, but uh, did you uh, interact with each other or were you, like, again, like fraternity, you stick to your own? Um. Well, we interacted a little, I mean, because we'd have mixed sections and we'd go out together, but not much. And there's a lot of rivalry between the two, too. Um, mm-hmm. It's like your fraternity. You're hanging with your own, you know, because yeah. you weren't, I mean, you might be in a mixed section, you brief it together and you do things, but you didn't hang out a lot with the other guys. Yeah. It just wasn't, you know, they were them. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. know, the other guys. <laughs> yeah. But they were, but they were all good guys, which you know, you know what I'm saying? But it's, but it's just like you said, like fraternity, you know, it's. Fellow fraternities, you might have a party together or something. You knew some guys there you liked, but you know you sung out with your squadron. Yeah, it's almost like football teams. It's like you you're both on the same, you know, mm-hmm. like you got the same mindset, but you're like, oh, I don't really want to hang out with you if you're not my team. <laughs> nope, exactly, Mike. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, very much so. It's very much like a sports team. Very much. And you also managed to fly the B. What was that like transitioning from the A to have them big engines? That must have been really cool. Well, you see, when I went through the RAG, we had both A's and B's because you didn't know which one you were going to, which squadron. Um, so I already had a taste of the big engines. And 
Wow. I mean, just such a, it's a different jet. I mean, just truly a different jet. Um, in the F-14B, you go up against an F-16 or an F-18, you know, at that time period, um, and you could fight them completely. I mean, I remember in the RAG, we went up against one of the F-16Ns, which is our adversary unit. And, you know, I, I beat him solidly. And my instructor was like, wow, you know, and I mean, I was good at ACM, you know, and a lot of guys were. But um, the jet had tremendous capabilities and with the engines that it was designed to have. So once you get the big engines, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, just like I said, it's a different jet. You know, you could accelerate going straight up after takeoff. I mean, it was just it was a rocket ship. Yeah, it's, uh, I've seen a few videos from the B and the D, and it's impressive. But did the cockpit change from the A to the B at all? Really not much. No, we, there were a couple small changes, you know, dealing with, like, the glove things that come out of the front of the wing were gone. Um, the uh, um, Really nothing. Now, we did have a, a couple of accidents with the Bs. Um, the, we, the engines were tuned up. These were the GE-110s that the F-16s had at the time. Yeah. Only we had two of them. And uh, they burned through the... Uh, um, the control rods on the horizontal stabs for the uh, Tomcat. Mm. And, of course, when you did that, you know, the the, um, the horizontal stabs on the Tomcat were the same size as A4 wings, if that gives you a, kind of an idea on how big they were. Well, um, a, a friend of mine, matter of fact, I was out with him, you know, the night before, he was going up in the jet. And uh, A6 guy, and he was getting, he was an LSO, so he was getting, uh, they got a good deal kind of transition where they could go fly another jet for a few hours. Um, and... Uh, he was excited. He got into the Tomcat. Now it gives him kind of an idea how the jet operates. So when they're waving it on the behind the boat, they know what the guy's doing and gives him a little more knowledge on it. Um, anyway, he was getting to go up and he was doing his low level run that night, uh, the next night, and uh, he was going to be on 200 feet, you know, Mach 1, 8, 2, or something like that. And uh, well, he had a burner can burn through, and the jet just disintegrated. So hmm. you know, they said the uh, fireball went 20 miles. So really, yeah, yeah. Quite unfortunate. Great guy too. Absolute great guy. But you know, but it's part of it. You know, what I'm saying you. You know, it happens. I mean, he he died doing what he wanted. But you know, it was uh, it's sometimes very hard. You know, especially as you look back now. You know, Memorial Day, I called his dad, and you know, he was still broken up because it's it's you know, it's part yeah. of naval aviation. We lost a lot of jets. We lose a jet of crews pretty much on average. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's, we didn't make count. Make it's it part out. of the lifestyle, yeah, exactly. Uh, but was there any um, envy from the A guys uh, to you B guys uh, having these new big motors? Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure, the A guys, A guys were, you know, very envious of the Bs and the Ds. Now, the Ds had a different cockpit as well. They had a different mm -hmm. HUD. Um, that, you know, real, I mean, it was a phenomenal jet. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. But, oh, yeah, A guys were very envious, as, you know, you, you guess. I mean, you know, <laughs> they didn't want to fight the, the Bs or the Ds. You know, it was... It was just such a superior aircraft, you know, with that addition. Yeah, and I've heard a few things from, like, I've interviewed a few AMB guys, and they said the, I think, uh, I think the air was faster. Uh, I can't remember if he said down low or up high. I don't know how true that is. Is that is there any truth to that? Oh yeah, no, they're, they're exactly right. The the B was actually, um, you know, it had a little more restriction on the engines, mm -hmm. but. So you'd only get the B up to about 1.9, maybe 1.88, 85, somewhere in that region, 85 to 9. The A, I had it above Mach 2. It was, uh, it took a lot longer to get there, um, but uh, um, it just wasn't as, it didn't have as much thrust away. But with the B, you got a little more restriction on the engines, and it kept you out of the Mach 2 range. One of the questions, uh, I've asked a few people, but I've never really got a straight answer, so maybe you can help me with this point, Steamer. Um, obviously, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, 
there is always or seem to always take off with afterburner on the carrier if they were heavy but their f14 b and d never did was this like a restriction because of that engine thing or just because they didn't need uh they didn't need to put it into reheat afterburner oh no the uh um the b wasn't allowed to be at full afterburner or to be an afterburner behind the jet blast you know the the uh, wall that comes up behind the tomcat you know when you're taking off or all the jets it's called the JBD, the Jet Blast Deflector, and that's to protect everybody on the deck from, you know, an afterburner or an engine taking off like that. And it's water cooled. There's actually lines running in there that keep it cooled. Hmm. Well, the F-14B's jet engines were so hot that it they it couldn't handle the heat, so we weren't allowed to use afterburner at the start of the takeoff. But a lot of times, what we do is we'd stroke the afterburner going down the, uh, um, you know, when you're you're being launched, going down the rails. And it would light off. The engines were so secure, you could move it during that that point, going from zero to 150 miles an hour in a little less than two seconds. You could light the afterburner and and be in full burner at the end. Too. But no, <laughs> we weren't allowed to use it. You know, while you're standing still. You know, when you see the guy down there, and you see the guy. You know, the pilot salutes. He kneels and points. Couldn't be in burner at that time in an F-14B. So, what would you say are the biggest strengths and weaknesses of both? I guess let's say the Tomcat in general, rather than the A and the B model. Just the Tomcat in general would be great. Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, its weapons platform was its greatest strength. I mean, it was. Um, it was, uh, you know, I mean, with the Phoenix and the Og-9, you could reach out and touch somebody, you know, 150 miles away, you know, and they'd blow up before they even knew you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, that was its strength. I mean, it was, you know, it was a fast jet. It was a great low-level, very stable platform. You know, the negatives were really got down to more like maintenance items. You know, it took eight hours to change an engine in a Tomcat. And like two hours in a, in a Hornet, so it came down to cost, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, they could have updated the uh, the Tomcat. And they had the the Tomcat Quick Strike was our next iteration, and it was superior to the F-15, you know, Eagles. Or I mean, the the E models, you know, not the Charles but the E's. Um, and strike capability and stuff. We could haul more ordnance, faster, and we had a lot more room in the nose because the bigger jet allowed you to have a lot more electronics, like better radars and stuff like that. But it all came down to cost. The Tomcat was, you know, it, unbelievably expensive in comparison. You could get a little F-16 for about $20 million, and a Tomcat was talking about 65 to $70 million. So it was just, you know, it came down to economics. And, of course, you know, engineering design and changing an engine eight hours, it just wasn't feasible anymore. You know, they had to take the old rivets and hand rivet them out instead of, you know, a couple of latches and the engine falls out, basically. So it was, you know, I mean, it just reached its time, unfortunately. Yeah, because that's kind of the next question I was going to say. Like, do you think it uh, was retired too early? Um, well, I mean, we didn't really have the capability of the Hornets to to uh, supplant what the Tomcat could do. Hornets are a great little day VFR fighter, and that's what it was. That um, they were slow, gas critical. Um, they didn't have the ability to carry missiles and really reach out and touch somebody. Yeah, but yeah. The, uh, you know, so I mean, that in that way, yes and no. I mean. You know, I mean, did we really need that at that point? I mean, the the Soviets had kind of, you know, been taken down. We weren't fighting the Chinese at the point either. Um, you know, it worked. The question is, do we have anything to replace it now? And really, no. You know, so, you know, I mean, it's kind of, a, um, you know, I mean, sitting back as a Tomcat guy, I go, do you need air defense to reach out and touch things? Well, probably, probably do. Um, can the Hornet really do it? Well, of course, I've been out for a while, so. You know, what they have now is a, a little bit out. The F-35, I think, brings a lot more capability um, with its electronic uh, warfare, 
you know, uh, and its uh, integration within the, you know, the whole battle system, you know, with the, with the, uh, um, the, the radars and stuff like that. You know, I can't talk a lot about it, but I do know, but it's, uh, it gives them a lot of capabilities to really know what's going on out there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe can you share a few stories uh, from uh, memorable stories from your time on the Tomcat, and at the end, which did you prefer, the A or the B? Wow. Uh, well, stories. I mean, you know, most of the stories are just scary stories. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know, times you're like, by the grace of God, here walk I. You know, um, you know. I remember one time we were we we're getting ready to go to the aircraft carrier, and obviously, you know, you work up to going out to the carrier. You do so a bunch of. Uh, um, what's called FCLPs, field carrier landing practice. And you go out to an outlying field and you do some touch and goes with LSOs on the station waving you. You come in for the break and it was, you tried to pretend it was just like the boat. Of course, it's not, but you know, you're, you know, you, you make an attempt. Yeah. So, and of course, the only time we could get the landing field out there was in the middle of the, mo the night, I guess, you know, like 2 a.m. in the morning because all the RAG students are going at the normal times. So they don't want to send them out there in the middle of the night. You know, they want them to have a fair chance at it. So our, our Charlie time was 2 a.m. So we launched out of Oceania at 2 a.m. You know, of course, it's a misty, rainy, nasty night on the East Coast. And of course, we're going out there VFR. And you fly out a certain radio and you hit these lights, which was the women's prison out there. You take a certain heading off that and you find the field, you know, 20 or 50 miles, you know, direct on this other radio. When you get out there and you do your stuff and you're coming back. Now, you're all alone. Nobody's talking. You know, it's rainy and misty and came in back to Oceana. And Oceana had a 12,000-foot runway, 11.9, something like that. So you come in for the break and you land. Well, the Tomcat, you know, when you'd, you'd land, you put the after you land, you put the stick full out. It, it put a lot of drag on the aircraft. And at 100 knots, you start the brakes. You're like, you're no problem. You know, nice, quiet night. You do the brake, land. You know, stick out and you hit the brakes and nothing. And you start sliding. And I'm like, this isn't good. Because, you know, we're good with the Tomcat. We've got a hook, you know, and there's a wire at the end of the runway. Yeah. You throw that down. Something's going on. You keep going straight. But I'm already, as soon as I touch the brakes, one kind of grabbed a little bit. And we're sliding sideways down this runway <laughs> and turning. And I'm, you know, so now you're kind of like, you know, what the heck do I do? Now, as a side note, the Tomcat had a zero, zero seat. So you can eject on flat ground, and you're perfect. But once you went off an edge, any edge, you were no longer in the envelope, and you'd hit the ground, and kind of deadly. So you're going to die from the ejection. So you know you need to eject before you get off this runway. Well, we're sliding down this runway. The only benefit is we're going straight down the runway, but we start turning. I've got the brakes locked up, and we're rotating. Now, how many times we've rotated? I don't know. I, I swear it's 50 times. Maybe one or two. Hard to tell. But in the middle of the night, sliding yeah. down at 100 knots down the runway. I mean, yeah. Well, we're coming to the end, and we're slowed down a bit. We're probably maybe 40 or 50 knots now. But And the reason we're sliding was this black ice on the runway, which you couldn't see. Just completely clear ice. It had a, had a sheet on this runway. And so we're sliding down. Well, we're coming to the end, and I look over, and I see where the last turnoff point to get off the uh, – um, the runway, there's a taxiway on the side. And I realized that we're going off the end because the end is probably 200 feet beyond this. So I uh, just jacked up the throttles. And we're just having to kind of point in that direction. Not exactly, but pretty close. The engines catch, and I shoot off the runway. <laughs> and I'm sure my reel's going, what are you doing? Anyway, <laughs> we get on the taxiway, and just by the grace of God, there was no ice on the taxiway. It was just on the runway. 
and we just stop. I mean, and it jolts. I mean, it is a hard jolt because I've got the brakes completely locked up. And we hit this dry thing, and the jet just, I mean, you swear they just pour off a tire. And we just stop. Now, in the Tomcat, the reel always did the talking to the ground. And, you know, it was a good job for him. And at this point, my reel can't speak. I'm like, hey. And I won't use his call center because I, <laughs> I don't have his permission. And I would, but I'm like, hey, uh, and nothing. He literally can't speak at this point. Mm. So I call up the taxi. And uh, Howard's like, Roger, uh, Snake. Taxi, you know, to, um, taxi was grounded. Nobody even saw us spinning down this runway, flying off the end. We get back, you know, and I got the seat pan out of my rear and uh, went in and had a couple of cool ones because it was one of those nights. And were they on you? Oh, yeah, man. I, well, you know, I, just by the grace of God. The, uh, another one we had one day was we were getting ready and we were coming out to the uh, um, getting ready to go um, basically on cruise. We were going and they wanted us to get used to flying a little lower. You know, because we we're getting ready for combat. It was serious. You know, we had a, a 10,000 foot hard deck for like the like, like, you know, the same type of aircraft. Because when you're flying another against another jet that has the same performance as you, the chances are if you fly right, you're going to end up with energy down in the at the ground. I mean, because nobody's better than that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? If you're flying the jet right, there's only so much you can do. So you just get into what's called a Luffberry, and you just kind of slowly bleed energy and altitude because you have to trade it for something. Until so you get down to the deck and it's a knock it off. You can't beat the other guy. It's how it's supposed to be. Well, I was flying with my lead. And my lead, he was. I mean, you have to understand, there were different levels within a, a squadron. There were guys that were better at it, just like on a basketball team. You know, I mean, or a, a soccer team, football. Excuse me. Football, yes. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? These guys that are better, they're all great players, but there are some guys that are better and some guys that aren't as good. Well, I'm fighting with my lead, and he was – he was okay, you know, and I was, uh, we were dogfighting, and we were getting down, and we'd made the hard deck 5,000 now. So I'm behind him, and I'm pulling for the shot, and I'm just out of range for the shot. The, the sidewinder is growling. I'm not sure if they're familiar, but the sidewinder yeah. would tell you. You know, it was like growling. Yeah, yeah. And I finally go, okay, the heck with this. I pull for the shot. You know, I get a scene tone on the sidewinder. Fox 2. Okay, knock it off. You're dead. Well, Usually we're at 10,000 feet, you know, and you trade all your airspeed for angles. You're like, whatever, I'll just hang here for a second. You know, we're good to go. Because the Tomcat required 5,000 feet for a loop. Mm. Well, we're at 5,000 right now. Now, I'm at zero airspeed pointed down. Now, remember, that's 5,000 feet at 300 knots. Mm. But I'm at zero airspeed pointed at the ocean right now. And you're going, wow, I'm in a little bit of a bad place here, <laughs> which I put myself in. You know, you're full afterburner pointed to the ground. Now, things are starting to happen really fast because you're accelerating quickly, and you really want to pull back on that stick. But, you know, if you do it below 270 to 280 knots, you're just going to pancake into the water. It's all over. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm waiting, and you're holding this down at zero, so you point at the water, and you're seeing the, you know, the horizon start to rise on you, and you're, it's, let's put it this way, it was very difficult. Well, you I, I hit about 280 knots, and I start to pull. Went to 60s. Is our, our best corner speed right there. And you can see the horizon coming up, coming up, coming up. And I, I don't know how close we got to the water. I mean, 20, 30 feet. We came out. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, my reel was like, oh, that was great. He didn't even know what the hell happened. I mean, you're up here going, wow. We just about bit it on that one. Yeah. It, uh, you know, you live and learn, I tell you what, by the grace of God. And, yeah. Uh, 
Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, which is your preferred flying, the A and the B, or A or the B? Uh, no question at all, the the B. I mean, it was just, it, it gave you so many more options. I mean, I was one of the FCF pilots, um, functional check flight pilots, um, when we got our new Bs in the BF-102. Uh, um, that was the squadron that got Bs, my second uh, fighter squadron. And uh, so you'd check them out. You know, you'd go out, and when they do uh, maintenance on it, they would send you out before they put it out with a regular pilot. And um, I remember I took one of the new ones, one of the acceptance flights, and I went out. And you had to do a bunch of different things with, you know, shutting an engine down and starting it up and doing different things. Anyway, I took it out, and I, I started to climb. And I got up to about 75,000 feet. And you could see the curvature of the earth up wow. off in front of you, black up above you. You could see the East Coast looked like a road map. And it was just the, the ability you could do with this jet. I mean, you'd launch up the carrier, 250 knots, 250 feet at 10 miles. You had unrestricted climb, you know, if you wanted it off the carrier. Because 10 miles was the the air, tra yeah, air traffic uh, area around the carrier. And you'd be at 250 knots. You'd light the afterburner at 20,000 feet. You'd be at 450 knots. Roll over, pick up Mach 1.2, and climb. And you could climb as high as you wanted to go. I mean, about 75 is the highest I wanted to go. So I'm like, this is <laughs> this is all I need, you know. Lose your engines now. You'll be a splatter mark on the inside of the plane, you know. But uh, it was just it was phenomenal. You know, you're dogfighting. If you didn't get the G on the aircraft right away, you couldn't go to full burner because you'd be arcing. Because you wanted to stay, depending on the altitude, about 270 to 300 knots was our corner speed in the Tomcat. And if you hit the afterburners, you'd be at 450 knots. You didn't have enough G available to slow the jet down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, without, you know, destroying something on it. So it was, uh, it was just a phenomenal jet. You know, it was harder to fly a really good pass of the boat because the engines were so powerful. Just a little touch and you'd, you know, pop it off the top of the... Uh, you know, the the uh, the Fresno lens there, you know, you just go around really quick. It was but it was nice. If things went bad, you could always go around. It wasn't seven seconds. You're like, wham, and you were gone. It was uh, the bees were just phenomenal. Absolutely. Amazing. Amazing. So how many hours did you actually get on the Tomcat altogether? How many hours? Mm -hmm. I had about eleven hundred hours on the Tomcat. Nice. <laughs> so you got your thousand power air patch. I, I do. Yeah, I got a thousand hour patch right over here somewhere. I was just looking through some stuff. The uh, yeah, that was the uh, you know thousand hour patch right there. Nice, that's impressive. That's like yeah. the coolest patch you want, isn't it? Minus the uh, F3, it was, it was, <laughs> well, you know, for us at the point, it didn't really mean that. I mean, you're like you're flying, you know. It, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny now because I look back and I go, gosh, that was a really cool jet to fly. Um, at the time, it was just what you did. You know, you didn't really think about it. You weren't like, oh wow, you know, this is. You're like, well, I'm a Tomcat pilot, and it seemed like there were a ton of us. You know, I mean, everybody, we had, you know, uh, um, I guess 24 squadrons of Tomcats, and there were, you know, about 12 jets in each one. You know, but now that I'm a little older at an airline and stuff, I realize how few of us there really were. I mean, you really, you know, put three, 4,000 Tomcat pilots total in the history of the jet. And, yeah, and that's from you know, the it was, it was not as many as you think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so, because, you know, your average pilot, you know, is there for probably four to eight years, you know, and you start, you know, looking and going, wow, it's there weren't as many as you thought. At the time, you thought everybody was a Tomcat pilot, you know. So, yeah, I think for like us ab geeks and people who, you know, haven't flown and stuff like that, and obviously with a movie, it's almost like being a space shuttle pilot. It's like, oh, the, the Tomcat, it's got this movie, and you're like, oh, you're a yeah. pilot or a Rio, and it's that, that cool factor, but obviously you guys were just like, yeah, it's our job, this is what we do. Yeah, so I mean, just, you know what I'm saying? I mean, when you at first, when you first get the jet, you're like super excited and stuff, but then you just, you know, it's everyday life. You go out and fly jets, you know, you're 
you know, it's just, it's, uh, you know, a real blessing to be able to do it, but you realize that it, uh, now that it was actually a really, really cool job to have, so, <laughs> you know.